You are listening to The Alien Chronicles. I want to sit in my mom's lap right now. It's what makes us different. I went on every single door until someone told me yes. Well, I'd have to have at least one book. Every human has like a similar core. Get out there and meet as many people as I can. so excited to present our special edition of the Alien Chronicles. Our guest for today's show is Eric Maddox. He is a fellow podcaster. Eric is not our typical guest, though. He's not an immigrant living in the U.S. In fact, he was born and raised in the U.S. and now lives as an immigrant in Spain. This episode will explore this interesting dimension of U.S. citizen living abroad. In addition to being a podcaster, Eric has a very impressive resume. Eric completed his graduate research in international conflict resolution while living in the West Bank and collecting oral histories from Palestinians and Israelis who had lived through the 1948 war. Back in the U.S., Eric set about documenting life stories on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border from 2009 to 2010 in what ultimately became the Virtual Dinner Guest Project. In 2015, Eric founded the nonprofit called Open Roads Media in Amsterdam to help expand the virtual dinner guest project. Eric now resides with his wife in Spain, where he's still navigating the complexities of being an immigrant, a U.S. immigrant, in fact, in the EU. We will talk to Eric about all his projects and his experiences as an immigrant living in Spain. And special edition of the Alien Chronicles starts now. Eric, welcome to my show. I am so glad you could make it. Um, You're not in New York with me right now. In fact, you're in Spain. That's correct. I'm in Valencia, Spain. And you're not our typical guest. In fact, you're a U.S. citizen living in Valencia, Spain as an immigrant. And the reason I wanted you on my show is because I wanted to draw parallels between your experiences in Spain versus experiences of immigrants living in the U.S., but that's just part of your identity. You're doing so much more, a lot more inspiring work of bringing communities together. And you're also a fellow podcaster. And we'll talk about all of that and much more. But before that, I would like to start at the very beginning. So if you could tell us where did you grow up in the U.S. and what was your childhood like? First of all, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So I grew up in California, split between two different cities. I spent early childhood up till I was, I think, 11 or 12 in Napa, which is about a 45-minute drive north of San Francisco. It's wine country. And then I moved for adolescence in my teenage years down to Bakersfield, which is in the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley and kind of the agricultural heartland of the West Coast. And also two very different places culturally. I think a lot of people tend to have the stereotypical notion of what California is, and it's just beaches and surfers and hippies and <laughs> Hollywood. Not so much the center part of California, where I spent my junior high school and high school years, probably has a lot more in common with the South, the Southern United States, than it does culturally, really, with what people think of when they think of the West Coast. A lot of that, I think, is a byproduct of migration internally in the U.S., People came to the Central Valley fleeing what's called the Dust Bowl during the Depression, massive famine 
people came from across the South and the central United States and look of food and work. And they brought their culture, their values, and some of their conservative sensibilities with them. And so that's really what I grew up around during my formative years. I mean, I was too young to really notice some big political shift in my life between 11 and like 12 and 13. But I did grow up surrounded by conservative culture. And I say that as well in my family, not just my community. My parents are fairly conservative people, reliable Republican voters and evangelical Christians. So I didn't grow up necessarily in a community that might have produced someone like me, if that makes mm. sense. <laughs> like, uh, I don't want to characterize myself as like a liberal either. You know, like I just, I think a lot of people would suggest that a lot of my views would be consistent with progressive views, but I've come by them my own. I didn't buy into some ideology and swallow it whole. In many ways, like my views are part of an unlikely journey and a function of my travel. And as you said, if you were to ask me, I would consider you a liberal and have these progressive values. I would like to understand what triggered that, because as you explained, culture at home was conservative, culture in the community was also conservative. But if I look at your profile, what triggered you to do the work that you're doing and have those ideals that you have today? Yeah, so if I needed to pinpoint like a couple of things, I guess what I would point at are one, my undergraduate education, and two, the role that travel and specifically travel in the Middle East have played in my life. So I went to an undergraduate institution where I studied philosophy and classic literature for four years. And while that might not seem like it directly translates to international mindset, mm. what it did do was position me to think a little bit more critically about the media that I was consuming in the U.S. And also so that once I finally did start to travel, that I was receptive to alternative viewpoints and willing to look at my own more critically. I can't really just say that like that was innate. It was something that I was taught through studying Western philosophy. That played a key role, my, my undergraduate experience, which wasn't really political in any way. I wasn't politically aware or active at all until after university. My first real experience traveling alone was about a year after September 11th and very much connected to September 11th, 2001, and very much connected to those events. I was curious to know what was going on in this part of the world that was being portrayed in very reductionist, simplistic terms, in terms of like them and us. Why do they hate us? And I decided to take out some student loans and go study Arabic. <laughs> and I wound up in Egypt doing just that and also traveled around Lebanon and started interacting with local people in their countries on their terms and listening to what they thought of my country's footprint in that part of the world. And it became very clear to me very quickly that they were better informed about politics in my country than I was about the politics in theirs, and that they were better informed than a lot of Americans about American mm -hmm. politics. And I started to realize it was because they needed to be, because in so many ways their destinies and their security was going to be shaped by the changes in U.S. policy from one administration to the next, or the fact that it doesn't seem to change much. So I'd say that travel and, yeah, being exposed to philosophy and critical thinking played a really formative role in preparing me to start asking questions and be a little bit more curious about the world I live in. So firstly, I would like to know what was your major or what were major lessons learned during your time in the Middle East? As you said, it was like what you were hearing in the U.S. and 
what media was portraying about that particular region was not in sync with what you saw on the ground. So maybe a few things that you learned that you were obviously or maybe shocked about as well. And also, how has your relationship with your parents changed because of what your ideals are and what you believe in now and the kind of life that you're living? Because again, as you said, your parents are more conservative and their values are different mm-hmm. from your values. So, yeah, I mean, it's been many times in the Middle East. The first time that I went was in 2002 as an Arabic student. Then I went back again in 2007, 2008 to complete my graduate research in international conflict transformation. And I lived in the West Bank and traveled all over the West Bank and Israel. And then more recently in 2012, I've spent a good chunk of, well, four years traveling all over the Middle East and North Africa. So that would include Egypt, Tunisia, Gaza, Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. I think I covered where I've been in the Middle East. It's been in stages, my travels, and the time that I've spent there has grown longer each subsequent trip. I mean, it's difficult to generalize about the Middle East. Even the term itself is like, it's a construct. Nobody can really agree on what it even encompasses. You know, some people say that it doesn't really extend much beyond the Arabian Peninsula. Other people say it actually extends all the way to Afghanistan and Morocco. So, I mean, that's already challenging and problematic, right? As far as my experiences and the things that I took away from being in Egypt and Lebanon and Palestine and other places... I started to realize how divergent reality was from what was being portrayed in the media. You know, and often what we get in Western media is this notion that it's just this nonstop horror show filled with car bombings and abductions and beheadings. And that that's pretty much what informs everybody's daily reality, that it's just nonstop misery. And that's not what I experienced. And it's not to say that there isn't a hardship and that there isn't political violence, but I mean, I didn't feel unsafe as an American. You know, during my five months in the West Bank, I didn't feel the need to lie about where I was from or even look over my shoulder walking down the street at night. Like it just, it was a non-issue. And in fact, kind of the opposite. In the West Bank, like you could, I could just leave my camera sitting on a park bench or in other places that I've traveled, like I just left, I could leave my laptop and I street side cafe and walk around the block and come back and it would just be there. You just knew the neighborhood was going to look after your stuff. I wouldn't do that in New York for 15 seconds. I'm not trying to paint some idyllic picture or portray the Middle East as like the opposite of how it's portrayed. Things, it's just that reality is a lot more complex and that in general, I found that the sense of community, communal responsibility was very strong in the Middle East and in ways that we seem to often lack in the West and especially in in big cities. So that was a big part, just how eye-opening it was to realize that things are very different on the ground and how they're portrayed in the media. And then from there, feeling a sense of frustration and anger that I'd been duped, you know, that there's, what's this about? Why are we being so misled? And we're being misled in ways that allow or that lead Americans and Westerners to be more permissive about militancy and about invasions and about doing harm and violence to other people. Because when you buy into that narrative, it's a narrative filled with threats toward us, supposedly, right? Us meaning Western countries. And when you start to realize that that whole pretext is kind of a sham, then you realize that our, our violence is unwarranted and that we're causing unimaginable suffering that's completely unnecessary. 
And so I felt this need to figure out ways to share with other people some of the things that I was learning and that I was continuing to learn, so to try and find mechanisms through media to take people on this journey. Because I don't say that I've arrived any place. You know, I don't think I've figured it all out. I've learned a lot, and I want to take people on a journey with me to, as I continue to learn and to question. Fundamentally, what I'm about is trying to get people to question simple certainties and to promote curiosity. And has that changed your relationship with your parents mm. or the way they look at the world versus the way you look at the world? Well, my mother passed away in 2010. So she didn't get to see much of what I've done in the last seven years, like with the Virtual Dinner Guest Project. Although she did see the beginnings of that when I started it in Mexico. I did talk to her when I came back from the West Bank. I engaged her in conversation. You know, I was raised in a Christian evangelical household and as a, a lot of American Christians and, and non-Christians are probably aware, you know, a lot of American churches tend to be fairly pro-Israel. I didn't even really know what a Palestinian was until after college. I had no idea. I had definitely heard about the Middle East and heard about Israel, but like those people, I had no idea where they were or what the relationship was to that issue. So that tells you something there about just how politicized American Christianity has become on that particular issue and also how that issue is discussed, how it's framed. So I started to have conversations with, well, I started to have conversations with my mother about that and just told her, look, like uh, things are different. I've seen things with my own eyes and it doesn't really match up to what I've been getting in the news or what I've been hearing in churches growing up. And I started to share those things with her and she did what most, I mean, I think American parents do also, which is, when I announced that I wanted to travel in that part of the world, that was she was scared and she was worried about my safety and all of that stuff. And I assured her that, look, like actually I was totally fine the whole time that I was gone. And mm. it was hard to convince her of that because she's just a mother being extra cautious and, and an American consuming the same news that we all are, you know? That was kind of the challenge. But there wasn't like a sense of my parents are going to disown me or I betrayed them because my views have changed. My parents weren't really political when it came to stuff going on outside the U.S. That wasn't really discussed much in our household, other than just maybe discussing whatever sound bites were on the evening news. But it really wasn't a topic of conversation. So there wasn't like something I was, there wasn't some narrative I was pushing back against. But as far as my dad, we went through a period where we didn't talk a whole lot. But then more recently, we've engaged in a lively conversation. <laughs> and, and my podcast has actually helped a lot with that. We talk just about every week about the episodes that I put out. And my dad's still a pretty conservative guy. He's also a physician. You know, he's a man of science. He's an open-minded, well-educated guy. And he keeps me honest. I can't just throw mm -hmm. out a bunch of like liberal tropes and expect to win his attention or to win him over. And I keep that in mind in how I produce my show as well. I'm not just trying to score cheap points and just play to uh, one side of the political spectrum. I really want to and try and encourage everybody to think more critically about the content that they're consuming, all that stuff. The podcasting thing, my travels, all that, it's actually, it hasn't been a source of tension other than just normal parental concern. And I'm really blessed in that way to have parents that had some concern about my safety. But other than that, were fairly willing to listen to what I was, what I was learning. And I think 
what you've talked about in terms of critical thinking and how how you're trying to promote that i think in fact i believe your uh, virtual dinner guest project is manifestation of that kind of work and i would like you to talk a little bit about that and specifically your time in the west bank so i was in the west bank in 2007 2008 and that was as a graduate student and what i did during that time was run around israel and the west bank interviewing people about the 1948 war so retired israeli military palestinian refugees people from all different walks of life about their direct experience of the 1948 war which for your audience if they're not aware is what created the state of israel and the first wave of about 750,000 to 800,000 palestinian refugees i interviewed them and then their grandchildren on both sides to see how the oral histories have been passed down through multiple generations When I got back to the US, I learned how to edit by taking night classes at a community college after I'd finished graduate school and I submitted the results to a couple of small film festivals. It was super basic and never released commercially. In fact, that was kind of an agreement that I had. I submitted it as part of a competition to the New Mexico State Governor's Film Office and I won a small cash contract award and I decided to use that money to do a similar project on the US Mexico border. and I spent the better part of 2 years doing that so this is like between 2009 and 2011 traveling back and forth across the US Mexico border interviewing people on both sides i mean from all walks of life like diplomats the minutemen like kind of the self-appointed like vigilante border force on the US side of the border transgender sex workers and what is Mexico food vendors like all of it and i amassed a ton of footage and realized that I'd run out of money and that I taken on way too much. Like I was trying to make a film basically about the border, <laughs> you know, like as one guy. And this realized this is this is insane, like I don't have the resources and I have no clear narrative thread here. I didn't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so I realized okay, but what do I have where I can continue to push forward and and have something of value come out of this? And I realized I had amassed quite a few connections. I also realized, you know what? People are making films on this subject already, which isn't to mean say that I don't want to finish that film at some point. You know, I still have it sitting on like hard drive, but I realized I should remove myself from this process. What if we just had Americans and Mexicans talking to each other directly in real time? Why do I need to be a part of this? Why do I need to filter things out with my editorial point of view? So that's what I did. I pitched a news story to a local newspaper in New Mexico and said look if i go and set up like these cross border exchange over skype between people in juarez and people in santa fe will you let me write like a feature story about it and they said yes so i spent several months traveling back and forth interviewing mexicans in their homes setting up skype accounts and web cameras in their homes and we set up the first virtual dinner guest project in uh, i think it was july of 2011 i continued to do that i was also I mean I had a day job at the same time and this was just something I was doing as a thought experiment not really knowing where I was going to go with it. I did another project with Mexico. I had some people find out about my project in Pakistan actually and so I connected to Pakistan from Santa Fe and to Karachi and then also to um Uganda. So now we're like kind of toward the end of 2011 and during that year is when the quote unquote Arab Spring was happening all over the Middle East. So I'm, of course I'm like watching this with rapt attention because I've spent time in that part of the world 
and was working on a project that was supposed to be focused on connecting people. So I thought, I got to get back there, but I'm broke. <laughs> like, how do I do that? And so I decided to crowdfund it. But I decided to prove that I was serious by buying a plane ticket to Beirut first. And they said, look, I'm going to leave in like a couple of months, quit my job, and head out to the Middle East with this concept. And I'll launch a crowdfunder when I get there. If you want me to stay out there and continue doing this and eating, please fund it. And so that's what I did in February 2012. Scariest thing I've ever done in my life, at least up to that point. Yeah, so then I got to Beirut, February 2012, and I um, crowdfunded it. I wound up going to Egypt after that. I never raised a ton of money for this. Like, it's just enough to survive for a couple of months here and there in places where the cost of living is low. And then continued on to Tunisia, got a small amount of money out of Skype at a certain point, and continued on, actually went to Syria at one point, Gaza and other places. And just setting up these connections between usually universities or university students in uh, the Middle East and uh, Western countries. So I'd be connecting to a professor or something in an American university. And the idea being that at some point the universities would agree to like integrate this into their courses. It ended up being a lot <laughs> to set these things up just to have people talk. So at a certain point... I decided, all right, there needs to be something to show for all of this. Like all of the time and energy that goes into setting up these conversations is kind of wasted if it just ends up being a closed system, if it ends up just being totally insular. So I think in 2013, I decided, okay, what if we turn these dinner guests, and that's what it is. I mean, it's two groups of people, typically five to 10 people on each side, connecting over Skype and sharing a meal together to have a 90-minute discussion based on their country's media narratives about each other. Mm. And at the end of that discussion, I decided, all right, well, let's take another step and turn them into filmmakers. So now what we do is each side at the end of that discussion poses a question to the other side. So I've done this, for example, between India and Pakistan. I've done this between the Gaza Strip and Native American community in Northern California. I've done this between Mongolia and Lebanon, like all over the place. And whatever question you receive in your on your side, you then have like two to three weeks to take it to the streets in your country, in your city, and go interview random people and make a short 10-minute film that answers this question while people on the other side are doing the same thing with your question. And then we take those short films we subtitle them because we do them in the local languages and we post them online as a free public education resource to educate the global public. So that way, if you do a connection between like India and Pakistan, it's not just a conversation between a dozen Indian and Pakistani students. It's something that people in Canada and Mexico and China can watch, you know, as long as it's if they've got an Internet connection. I mean, this is such a great project. And I think the most difficult part of this whole process is bringing individuals together who are in conflict or don't agree with each other. And I think that's what we're seeing in the U.S. as well. And I'm sure you're aware of mm -hmm. political situation here and mm -hmm. the left doesn't want to talk to right and you know we have blue america and red america so eric if you were to do the virtual dinner guest project between say red and blue america how would you execute it and what cities would you choose and do you think it would make a difference yeah i have thought about this actually and it's been suggested to me a bunch over mm -hmm. the years and i'm totally open to doing it in fact the only th reason i haven't done it is same reason a lot of struggling nonprofits don't do more programming and it's just we don't have the funds, you know. I've got the idea, 
I can plug it in just about anywhere. That's one thing that, that I worked very hard on with this project is trying to come up with a framework that you can drop into just about any cultural context and have it work because it's primarily directed by the participants. You know, so it's highly adaptable as far as the subjects that we discussed as well, totally adaptable. So as far as the cities, I mean, that's a good question. And it's also hard to give a direct answer because in any big city, you have a mix of views. And part of what I struggle with and find frustrating is that we just look at like whole blocks of our country as just being red or blue. And then on top of that is if being someone who votes Republican or who votes Democrat has a very short list and set list of priorities. Frankly, like the Democratic platform or the Republican platform, I don't know how many people those actually, their platform, if it's like three or four issues, does that really speak to the interests of all Americans? Are most of their concerns even on the table for discussion when it comes to a presidential campaign? Mm -hmm. Or we just settle for what the least worst option is out of a very small buffet of choices, yeah. <laughs> you know? As far as cities that connect, I'm open. I mean, we can go with places in the deep south and connecting to like the quote unquote coastal <laughs> elites. That's fine. But really, you can do this even within towns and don't even need a virtual connection. Where I spent like, and where I'm still a resident, New Mexico, that's a purple state. It just had a Republican governor for two terms. Now it's got a Democrat one and just went totally blue in this last midterm election. And that tells you something about New Mexico, you know, like it can kind of go either way. And why is that? There's the issue of like, well, people may be being more conservative in rural areas than they are in cities. But Albuquerque also a, has a military base and military culture can tend to be more conservative. So it can be about geography, but it can also just be kind of anywhere where you can find a cluster of people who are identify as conservative connecting to people who don't, yeah. you know, and that could be pick a city in the U.S. You could do that anywhere with anywhere, I think. Just no, that's absolutely true. I feel like the town that I live in New York, like in one of the burbs, I've always considered it a relatively liberal town, but I'm hesitant to talk about even my podcast because it's so focused on immigrants and immigrant experiences. Mm -hmm. I am hesitant to share even that with them just because of this notion or perception in my mind that they may not like it or they may judge me a certain way. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. I could just go out in town and have a conversation, but it's just that fear of having that conversation, which obviously you, you're you not fearful of that, which is a great quality to have. I'm, I'm like at this point in time and during these like crazy times, I think, not having that fear of reaching out and speaking with somebody who may not believe in what you believe in is a great quality to have, which you have. Talking about migration, one of the reasons obviously I wanted to bring you in was that you're living as an immigrant in Spain. And I wanted to understand what are some of the challenges that you're facing as an immigrant living in Spain and if there have been any experiences that have humbled you. Ooh, the short version... I guess would be that, yes, it's been humbling in the sense that I realized how much help I needed to get through this process. It's not my language. I'm learning Spanish, but it's not my language. And I've relied heavily on my wife, her family, other people to get me through the immigration process and realize like how fortunate I am to have that assistance. And that having English is like my primary language, obviously that's not the language in Spain, but like if my first language was Arabic or something that's less widely understood, 
that would have been maybe more of a challenge. And also having the privilege of a U.S. passport. I had to wait in line like everybody else. I had to go through the same process as the other people. But I have no illusions about the fact that that line is almost certainly longer for people that are coming from other places, especially in the global south. Like there's people that just they're not necessarily going to be granted a visa just because of where they come from. That's anecdotal. I want to be clear about that. I've realized I've had that help and that there are people in the U.S. that are having to navigate our very complicated immigration system with their communication skills, maybe more limited and with no assistance or with limited assistance or a great expense to them on a low or modest income. And that's one thing that was a realization for me is just how much help I needed to navigate all of this bureaucracy mm -hmm. and how difficult it must be for people doing the same thing back in the U.S. who maybe have less resources um, and family. Like I have Spanish family here to help mm -hmm. me get through it, right? And it was still a challenge. What's that like for somebody who's coming to the U.S. by themselves, has no family there, and their primary language isn't one that's widely understood, or they don't have a passport that affords them a ton of privilege? So there's that. And then there have been kind of the flip side of that. This is anecdotal. The day I walked out of the immigration office in the town where I'm registered in, I was attacked by a skinhead. I was removing anti-immigrant Islamophobic graffiti from light posts in a public park at 10 in the morning on like a Tuesday. And I was missing work to be there, like working in Spain, paying taxes. And some guy strolling through the park, almost certainly not employed, spit in my face when I refused to stop removing what was essentially racist graffiti. And then tried to loose his German shepherd on my wife and I. And I took out my phone. I mean, one thing that's been useful a few times in my life is this instinct I have to start documenting things. So I took out my phone and started taking his picture. He quickly stopped trying to swing at me and started running away. So I chased him to his house and got a picture of his face, got a picture of his address, and turned it into the police. I mean, the next few months were just a nightmare. And again, keeping in mind, like, I have a U.S. passport. I have, like, all of these assets, right? Mm. And, I mean, I was threatened with fines if I missed court dates that were given to me, like, on short notice, and I had business trips to take. Like, all of the stuff, it was really disruptive in my life just trying to prosecute this guy for having committed what was very clearly, at least in the U.S., would have been categorized as a hate crime, like without question. To get to the end of it, eventually he did have a trial. We won 100 euros. It wasn't even enough to cover like the cost of gas to get to and from the court, you know, because of the distance we were living at that point. We were living in the other side of Spain. The guy declared himself a Nazi, like on his social media account publicly, like signed off with C. Kyle, I'm a national socialist. Mm -hmm. Like zero ambiguity. And in court, they didn't even want to hear it. They'd made their decision. The 100 euro fine was justice. So it's not about the money, but it's just, by the way, my court appointed translator, I think she was Moroccan. I mean, guessing from her name, most likely from North Africa somewhere. So I mean, a lot of these, it was really interesting, just the dynamics at play. Like here I am an American in foreign countries court, basically protesting are trying to prosecute somebody for a hate crime, being represented by somebody most likely from the Middle East to help me through this process. That was interesting, dynamic. That was humbling. And to have those resources there to support me was also a privilege. And I couldn't help but think, like, what if I was one of the, the majority of the people in that office that day when I was going to get my immigration papers? The majority of the women in the office were wearing hijab. 
And it's no mystery like why these signs were set up, like this racist graffiti was set up outside of that office, facing that office in a neighborhood that where those people might have been living. I have the nationality that allows me to kind of fight back without fear. What if your immigration status in Europe is more tenuous? What if your community is under direct threat? Like how likely are you to stand up and protest for your rights? Because it's so many different stages of this process. Like we went to the medical examiner. He laughed at me. He didn't even want to write down that I'd been assaulted. He didn't care. Like my wife had to argue with him to get him to actually document what had taken place. And Again, like that's my experience as an American. I mean, your audience might not know what I look like, but I pass for Arab in a lot of places, and it's entirely possible that that's why the guy was attacking me. I don't know. But I mean, I also pass for Spanish. So who knows? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Two kind of not snapshots. I know those are kind of lengthy explanations, but on the one hand, I've had tremendous privilege in having family here to help me out, having an American passport that might have, it didn't speed up the process, but it probably prevented any snags in the process. And then also being assaulted, coming out of the immigration office for trying to spend the first five minutes as an immigrant doing something to benefit other immigrants, you know, like trying to remove racist graffiti and being attacked by an avowed fascist. Like, as you mentioned, the doctor laughed at you. And then even in court, they weren't stressing enough on the fact that this guy was a Nazi. Why do you think that is the case? And why are people trying to trivialize this aspect of violence that we've seen across the globe? In the U.S., there has been an uptick in it and everywhere else. Why, in your opinion, what is the reason behind that? If there is violent act committed by a Muslim or a Latino or anybody, that's mm -hmm. treated very differently. But white nationalism is being trivialized. Why? Hasn't it always been? That's my short answer. Mm -hmm. Has it ever been like, this is a real problem, we need to do something about it? When black people were being hung from trees and their corpses were being used for like postcards in the South? I mean, it's always been downplayed, if not widely accepted. I mean, that we're even having the conversation we're having about it is progress, as sad as that might be. So there's that in the question of, is it surging right now or is it we're able to document it and share it better right now? You know, the same question that you could ask about reports of police brutality. People have camera phones. That, that's new. I don't know that the way they were being treated was better before people had them. So there's that. There's a question of, is it changing or is it just our ability to expose it without it being minimized? And then at the same time, it's being downplayed. I mean, yeah, again, I think it's always been. It's just that now when it's downplayed, when you don't have like documentary evidence to prove your case, it's downplayed and just dismissed. Mm -hmm. Now we're having a conversation where it's evident that it's being downplayed and that that's a lie to people who are being intellectually honest with themselves about what they're seeing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that element to it. And then this phenomenon, as far as how widespread it is, it's really interesting to be on this side of the Atlantic and to see what's transpired in Europe over the last few years as well. Like the U.S. is focusing on its southern border. Europe has long since clamped down on its borders. I mean, now Spain is the largest receiving country of migrants and asylum seekers from North Africa. It's past Italy and Greece, I think, over the summer, I think in July. 
Spain's also a country in the EU with hard borders because it has two colonial outposts in North Africa, in Morocco, that have fences to keep out people trying to cross in. So that doesn't get much airtime. You know? <laughs> what are you talking about that too much? And then Frontex, the European Union's essentially their border patrol, has long since sealed off the uh, Aegean from people that are trying to cross from Turkey into Greece. I mean, people are still doing it, but it's also just diverting, much like the U.S. border fence did. After the Secure Fences Act was passed in 2006, by the way, voted for by Senators Clinton, Biden, and Obama, mm. that border fence was erected in a lot of cases in urban settings with the effect that it funneled people into the most remote and deadly parts of the desert. And they call it the funnel effect. And so there's like migrant trail in like the southern Arizona desert that's littered with corpses to the point where like the, I think the Pima County morgue in southern Arizona was overflowing at a certain point with unidentified remains. And you have that but in the case of the European Union, except those bodies are hidden under the Mediterranean. You've got people that are drowning to try and get to a better life or to escape hell on earth. And when the global financial crisis hit in 2008, and people started to, at least in the case of Europe, started to question the viability of uh, the economic model they've been living under without borders and with more free trade in the European Union, people started looking for scapegoats. You know, this is like a cycle that just repeats. When the system that you're in, when there's a catastrophe, then people start to look for other people to blame. You know, instead of the system itself, maybe, they start blaming immigrants because they can't fight back. They're an easy target. That's been taking place in Europe as well, and it's been going on in the U.S. since forever. And I think to your point, uh, media, as you talked about this earlier as well, media perpetuates stereotypes, and they don't cover important events or information. Mm -hmm. And to that point, I would like to talk about your podcast, mm -hmm. because you're using podcast as well as a medium of conveying these thoughts and, and making change. And you truly are a change maker in that sense. So could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, Latitude Adjustment? And first, what motivated you to start the podcast on top of everything else that you're doing right now? And where can listeners find it? Sure. So yeah, the podcast is called Latitude Adjustment. Like attitude adjustment, but like... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, people can find it just about anywhere you'd find podcasts. So iTunes, any podcast directory through Android apps, Spotify, or on my website, latitudeadjustmentpod.com. That's the plug. And then the focus of the podcast is to highlight underreported stories or topics, places, and communities. So the parts of the world that are getting ignored or that are just being framed only in terms of crisis and violence. There's a huge parts of the planet where the only time you ever seem to hear about them is if there's a man-made or natural disaster. And then we wonder why so much of the world just seems like this scary, awful place. And especially when Americans don't travel that much, and especially to the global south, I mean, how is that not going to create a really distorted view of how most people in most places are living most of the time? So the idea for me is to shine a light on some of these places and provide a little bit more nuance. The agenda is really as simple as that. Just let's hear from people in places that we don't hear about very much and have them describe their life experience. And I found a long time ago that facts are 
essential and should be a fundamental part of any kind of campaign for human rights and arguing on their behalf, but they have limited value in, in swaying people. And so what I found is people tend to connect to other people. They connect to stories. They connect to people's experiences. So I find people who will share about their lives and their journeys and what led them to do, in many cases, extraordinary things, and then use that as a way to introduce people to broader issues, whether it's America's involvement in their countries or whether it's just understanding more about their culture and their communities because they're either misrepresented or just altogether ignored by the Western press. If you were to change one misconception about immigrants anywhere in the world, because obviously you're living in Spain as an immigrant, what would that be? I think it's important for us to address what are the root causes that are leading people to leave mm -hmm. their countries. If they're fleeing poverty, why are they poor? What is the net flow of capital with respect to their country and their region? You know, we talk about the fact that like some of these countries receive a ton of aid. Well, they receive aid money based on certain conditions that might require what's called structural readjustment, which means a complete overhaul of how their economy works, which often is in the interest of a select elite class and not the lower middle or the poorest people who might make up the majority of the population, but who don't have a whole lot of political sway. So what ends up happening is massive resource extraction from these countries, or there's just the fact that they're fleeing violence. And anybody would do that, especially if it's not just about them, but about their children. And so that's what people are leaving. And if Western countries are so concerned with the fact that people are leaving these places, the first thing that they need to be doing is addressing why are they leaving? And then what role do we as citizens of Western countries have in their circumstances, in the conditions of their misery? And that's where people should be asking more questions about how their tax dollars get spent. While we're talking about, or while certain people in American political culture are talking about a, quote, invasion of like, what, 7,000 people coming in a, in a migrant caravan from Central America, the U.S. is spending $123 million a day in Afghanistan, which is about half what they were spending at the height of that war. That's 17 years in and $123 million a day in a war where the U.S. holds, where the Taliban holds more territory today than they have at any time since 2001. Like, there's no end in sight. That is just money that we are burning. And talk to me about how we don't have money to invest in some of these Latin American countries that the U.S. has invaded, not once or twice, you know, multiple times. So we need to become more familiar with our own history, American history, as far as intervention in some of these places, the role that it's played to destabilize them economically, politically. When we talk about corruption in these countries, what role has the U.S. played in making sure that there has been corruption as long as it's done what the U.S. wants and address the, mm -hmm. our responsibility for subsidizing the circumstances of their misery? So that's one take some of that Afghanistan war money and maybe put a fraction of what we spend in like a month into some of these countries. And we'd start making a real difference for probably an entire generation yeah. of people in whole countries. That's one way we can address it. And the other is this notion that like, what is this invasion about? What are they going to change? Since when did European culture mean one thing ever or the U.S.? When did it become this static thing? Explain that to me. It's a small blip on the radar of human history that, quote-unquote, white European culture was even significant in the Western Hemisphere. 
there are people that are stuck in this notion that like that snapshot in history, that, by the way, which was built on the worst crimes ever committed in the history of the planet to even entrench it for the short period of time that it was there, that somehow that's what we need to cling to. And anything that's threatening to change that is an invasion. Like here's a newsflash in the next two years, the U S as far as the demographics is going to be majority non-white for everybody under the age of 18. And I think it's what, by like 2045 yeah. or something, that's going to be outright majority non-white. But that's what, what scares them the most. Can't change it. Isn't it? <laughs> Can't change it. These yeah. are the people that your kids and your cousins and your brothers and sisters and your friends, they're intermarrying. And maybe what we're hearing is like the death knell of like people who just want to cling to this, like I was saying, this one brief moment in ugly history where one narrative of, of like racial supremacy held sway, <laughs> like those are the good old days for a diminishing and more and more politically irrelevant class. So there's that, but the bright part in all of that is like maybe we'll just breed it out of ourselves. At a certain point in a country as mixed as the U.S., if we continue along this trajectory, nobody's going to know what anybody else is. Maybe that's one of the blessings of being a melting pot, that eventually we will actually live up to it. I mean, it's cheesy as all of this might sound, like, because love will actually triumph. Like, literally, people will just get married, have kids, and not know <laughs> who to point the finger at anymore because everybody's going to be so mixed. I think that would be a beautiful thing. That would absolutely be a beautiful thing because I think that's what how people in other parts of the world see America as. Mm. Like, growing up, that's what I thought America mm. was. A place where you could integrate and a place where you could realize your dreams and you could be anybody or do anything and not be put in these tribes or silos or whatever, because I come from a very homogenous society. So if that's what I wanted, I could have lived in that homogenous society and be happy. So absolutely. I think um, Eric, this has been such an informative and interesting conversation and I hate to end it, but I would like to move on to my rapid fire round, which is like the fun stuff. We'll get to know you a little more. Sure. And this is like, you know, short questions and you'll just like, yep. just like one liners and you'll just answer like, okay, great. <laughs> so podcasting or filmmaking? Why choose? You have to choose one. <laughs> That's difficult. Right now I love podcasting because it's new. So if I had to pick, I guess I would pick that just because it's my current love. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Yes. Yes, what? That's how weird I am on a scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Probably mustard. Mustard? I mean, I would need things to put it on, but I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. I just It makes everything okay. better. Your biggest failure? I'd say probably some of my personal relationships. I mean, I'm not going to go into the gory details too much, but I think like <laughs> all of us, you know, there's like, you have regrets in life about relationships that... Uh, don't exist anymore. You know, lost friendships, all mm -hmm. of that stuff. I'm learning like anybody else how to be a human and trying to learn from heartbreak and lost relationships. Your biggest achievement? I think in some ways just surviving, doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean that barely at this point. But um, yeah, after seven years kind of on, on the road or outside of the U.S., most of that time, I never would have guessed that I would have been doing this stuff even six months after I bought that ticket to Beirut, you know? It's a grind a lot of the time, and I tend to, to not reflect on just that as being remarkable. But yeah, that's a thing. I still get to be doing the stuff that I'm doing. And if you could describe yourself in three words? Conflicted, curious, temperamental. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? 
Don't wait for permission to start being who you want to be. Take the initiative. Your idea of vacation? I'm not really a big vacation person. And maybe that's just because I've spent a lot of time like away from home. And so this, the whole notion of what yeah. that would even mean to me is kind of confusing at this point. <laughs> but yeah. uh, the next place that I'd like to travel and see, I want to see Southeast Asia and I'd like to see more of Africa. I want to see more of Africa as well. I haven't seen Southeast Asia much, mm-hmm. but Netflix or TV? I haven't had a TV in years. That one's easy. Netflix for sure. <laughs> Instagram or Twitter? In general, I think I'd like to have less of all of that in my life, but to the extent that it's necessary for promoting my projects, I'd say whatever works. Yeah, because I feel like being a podcaster, and this is so new to me, but I'm a lot more on Instagram and Twitter, mm. which you're right, I don't like, but that's, I think, we can't help it, right? Yeah, it's so. a tool, you know, it's a tool for promoting yeah. what you do. And to that degree, I mean, I'm still learning which one's more vital you know, which one's more helpful because I'm not really terribly active with either of those platforms. Cultural diversity is? Inevitable if tyranny is absent. Favorite emoji? Maybe that one. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> tea or coffee? I can't drink coffee. It doesn't agree with me, so definitely tea. And home is? Elusive. Eric, thank you so much for being on my show and giving us a glimpse into your life and your projects and Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for having me. Can I say one thing before I go? Absolutely. On some of the topics that we've discussed, I've already done podcast episodes. So if people want to learn more about my actual experience being in the Middle East, like they can check out the episode that we did on Gaza. They can check out the episode on Mexico. And I've done a few related to the Middle East as well. We hope you guys enjoyed our special edition. I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today and those who have supported us. And if you haven't still supported us or subscribed to us, please do. It's extremely important for us. In order for us to sustain our pod, we need your support. And if you have a story to tell or any new ideas, please contact us at thealienchronicles at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ChroniclesAlien. And you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. And if you want to know more about Eric, please check out his work on openroadsmedia.org or for more info about his pod, go to latitudeadjustmentpod.com. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.